if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Um, I had decided this Sunday I was not going to preach on the book of Nehemiah. Instead, I was going to search for a good passage that would talk about some topic related to the Reformation. And so uh, I spent a number of weeks praying about that and studying various things. And then it's like the Lord, you know, just sort of reminded me as we look at Ezra, uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, this is Sola Scriptura. And I thought, well, what better topic? Let's just continue on in Nehemiah. So we're going to do so this morning as we look at verses uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people are, were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, scribe, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform um, that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithia, um, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebi, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadai, Masai, Kelita, Hashariah, Zobadad, Hanan, Palayal, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at His word this morning. Lord, as we come this morning, we know that You are a very clear communicator, but we are not always good at listening and understanding. Uh, so we ask that your spirit would open our hearts wide to receive the ministry of your word. Help us not only to understand it, but to believe it. And help us not only to believe it, but also to rightly practice it in our lives. It's in your name, O oh God, that we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we come to, to Nehemiah chapter 8, it might be good for me just to take a few moments and sort of recap a little bit where we've been. I've been gone for a couple of Sundays, so you may have forgotten. Maybe not, but maybe I've forgotten, so let's just recap a little bit. The Jews had just finished the wall of uh, Jerusalem as we come to the end of, of chapter 7. And that's a big deal, because if you've been with us through our study of Nehemiah, you know that that has pretty much been 
the theme of the entire book up to this point in time. The first couple of chapters were God dealing with Nehemiah and his call to come to Jerusalem to uh, rebuild the wall. And so there was Nehemiah rustling and struggling because the city was in ruins and, and God's people were living in shame and God's glory in essence was at stake. And so he felt called of God to go and to be part of that to rebuild the wall. And so he did. And we come to chapter 7 and you would almost expect uh, the writer to say, okay, the end of the book. Uh, let's move on. It's, it's been accomplished. But as we look at chapter 8, we realize that there is more that's going on to this story. Isn't that oftentimes a way that God works in our lives? You know, we're like, Lord, help me to deal with this sin. Or Lord, help me to, to, to do this or don't do that or whatever. And God oftentimes does stuff much deeper. You know, his, uh, his purpose, his idea is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the people of God who not only have the temple that was rebuilt uh, decades beforehand, and now the walls are completed, but, but um, you know, now they are a people who can once again dwell with God in covenant relationship in the place where he has made his name to dwell. And, and we see as we move on to chapter 8 that, that that's not enough. That's not where God is going to stop. That the Lord is seeking to make a holy people, worshipers of God. That he's done the work on the temple, done the work on the city, but now he is doing the work on the people. So the important thing to understand is that this work of reviving the people of God and making them holy is something that only God can do. I think this is important as we, as we think about the importance of revival in the hearts of God's people, not only in Nehemiah's day, but even in our day, that the church in America needs revival. It needs to be rebuilt. I think if you drive by churches and you look and, and, and as you read their signs and stuff, you see the American church has everything externally for the church. We have buildings and we oftentimes have staff or programs or money or many people who come and attend that church on Sunday morning. But internally, the church needs rebuilt. We need revival in our country. Um, we look at the mainline churches, mainline denominations, and many of those have drifted from the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't even talk about Jesus anymore. Um, I, I've read recently, uh, I, I, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not, but mainline churches that have uh, Sundays where you can come and bring your pet and they will pray a blessing on your pet. You know, it's not about Jesus. It's about how, you know, can we all just sort of get along. And it's very easy to look at the broader church and to shake our heads and, and to say, oh, Lord, the church needs revival. And, and while they, that is true, we need to not miss the fact that revival must begin with us. It must begin in our hearts and in our lives. And God is the one who, who works that revival in the hearts of his people. And we, the people of God, must respond in faith to the work of God's revival that God himself is doing. And this passage, in one sense, is, is about that sense of reviving the people of God. Especially, we'll see that as we move on in the, the upcoming chapters. But it's not about those wayward churches out there. It's for us. It's about here. It's about today 
It's about right now. We are called to respond to God's work of revival among us. Now, how does God revive his people? What is it that, that we're responding to? What were the people responding to in Nehemiah chapter 8? Well, you know, it's interesting that it's not about signs and wonders and exciting things and about a show at church that you can draw people in. It's not about all those things. Here comes revival through the Word of God. It comes through the simple yet powerful means of the Word of God. And, and everything that happens in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10 do so in in the people's response to the word of God that is read and explained in chapter 8. It is the word of God that leads the people to celebrate the Feast of Booths with joy. It's the word of God that leads them to repent and to seek mercy, God's mercy, as we'll see in chapter 9. It's, it's the word of God that leads them to renew covenant with God and agree to follow God's teaching in chapter 10. So how will we experience revival in our lives? How will we experience revival in our homes or our communities or our churches or our schools or our places of work? And you may be here today and you may say, well, Pastor Rick, honestly, not even thinking about that. Think about that. Think about that. Let us not be satisfied just to continue on just sort of status quo, but let us be thinking how God would do this. And we will, the reality is we will experience revival as we commit ourselves to the Word of God. As God's people commit themselves to the Word of God. You know, it's interesting that if you study revivals, most of them don't occur by God doing something out there. He usually first does something in His church. Now, sometimes that's led by the leadership. Sometimes it's led by lay people. You know, it, it, God uses, does it in various ways. But He usually always starts with His people and their repentance of their sin and their obedience to his word. And so we see here in chapter 8 sort of this pattern of how the people of God commit themselves to the word of God and how God begins to work in the hearts of his people. And the first thing I want us to see is just the priority of God's word, the priority that the people of God gives to God's word. We see in verse 1 that God's people desire the word of God. Look at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 7, you sort of see the time frame. Okay, this is the seventh month, which for most of us means nothing because we don't know the Jewish calendar. But that's usually about this time of the year, about September or October, okay? And the seventh month was actually a very important month. There was a lot of things that were going on. Um, you know, just like for us, even if you're not a church calendar type person, you know, usually you think of Christmas and Easter. Those are special times in the life of the church. Well, this was that way only like on steroids because in that one month, the Jews celebrated the Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booze. And then to top it all off, at the end of the month, they had a sacred assembly. And so it was a very busy time. And this month would have pointed the people of Israel in a very special way to their covenant relationship with God. It would have reminded them that He is their God and they are His people. And so what do they do? 
as they prepare to worship God, we read that they desire to hear the word of God. And so they requested Ezra to read God's word. And as they gathered and they listened to the word of God. Now, notice that it is the people who requested the reading of the word of God. It wasn't the leaders forcing that upon them. I mean, we've seen that in different times in Ezra and Nehemiah, where, where the leaders will, will initiate those things. Um, but that's not the case here. They understand that it is God who works revival and reformation in the hearts of the people. And when God begins to work revival in the hearts of his people, they desire his word. They want it because God works revival through his word. Now, you, you have to understand the last time that something like this has happened in the nation of Israel was back under King Josiah. Okay, And that was before the exile. That was hundreds of years beforehand. And Judah had languished under the godless reigns of uh, Manasseh and his son Ammon. But Ammon's son, Josiah, became king. Remember, he was younger. But then when he was 16 uh, and he was seeking to institute uh, spiritual reforms, it was then that Hilkiah, the priest, found a copy of God's word and he pulls it out and he opens up and begins to read it. And Josiah calls the nation of Israel to obedience to the word of God. And there is a revival in essence. And I say in essence because God's judgment was coming upon his people. And so while there was some reform under Josiah, God's judgment did come upon his people for, for years of rebellion. And he sent them into exile. But here in Nehemiah 8, we see something sort of similar in that sense of revival. And it is interesting um, that what you see now is Ezra, whom we haven't talked about for quite some time, who's, who's now sort of re-entered the scene. Um, we're not really talking about Nehemiah anymore. We're sort of coming to, to Ezra. And there's a sense in which you're going to see Ezra coming more to the forefront and Nehemiah sort of fading to the background. I think, if I remember correctly, if I counted correctly, Nehemiah is only mentioned like four times in the rest of the book of Nehemiah. I mean, he does have some speaking parts and he comes back strong in the end, but, you know, he's not the guy. And I, I think in one sense, this shows Nehemiah's humility, you know, and that God uses his people uh, at the appropriate times to bring about uh, his purpose and his will. Nehemiah had done the work that God had called him to do and now it was the time for Ezra and the gifts and the calling that God had given to him to minister to God's people. And so if you look down at verse 9, I know this isn't part of our text today, but in verse 9 of chapter 8, it describes Ezra as a scribe and a priest. This shows his ability to teach the law of God. As a matter of fact, if you recall back, and we won't turn there, but if you look back at Ezra, I think it's chapter 7, you know, it, it mentions that actually Ezra was an expert in the law of God. Um, and, and so here he is to bring that and teach it. It also shows his authority to lead the people in this regard because Ezra is a priest and the priest would have led the people in the worship of God. Now, Ezra's been in the city, just to give you a point of reference, it's probably been about 13 years. And we really haven't read much about what he's been doing, but the... The assumption, I, I think it's safe to say, is that when Ezra, when we first saw, when we last saw Ezra, he was preaching and teaching the word of God. 
And he would have continued to do that for these 13 years. And, and I'm guessing that that's why they came to him and they said, please read us the word of God. But, but what I want you to sort of see in this transition is that really the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, while they bear the name Ezra and Nehemiah, they really don't showcase Ezra and Nehemiah. These men are merely instruments to do God's will. Really the focus is God and his word. And so the people request the word of God. And then, kids, I want you to get this. Then they stood and they listened as he read the word of God. Now, kids, I don't want you to answer this out loud, but you can be thinking about this in your mind. Do you sometimes think when Pastor Rick reads the Bible, the, the scripture passages, that you think, oh my word, when's he going to get done? Especially those long passages in the Old Testament. Do you think, oh, he's taking forever to read this. When can we sit down? Kids, these people stood for six hours. Six hours hours from early morning till noon as Ezra read the word of God and more specifically as he read the Pentateuch the five books of Moses and it's it's only appropriate that he would do so because it's in the first five books of the Bible that we see where we have come where we came from you know how did the world get here who is God who are we we see our sin. We need. A, we see our need of a savior. You know. We see in that latter part of Exodus the doctrine of adoption and election, as God calls Abraham. We see in Exodus the book of redemption, how God redeems His people, and then in, you know that that book that we all sort of skip over when we're reading through the Bible in a year, the book of Leviticus. It shows the the holiness that we're called to as God's people to be sanctified, to be like. The Lord Jesus Christ. So it's so important that the people would hear this and they would see that God is their creator, their king. He is a covenant God who not only makes covenant but keeps covenant with his people. That God guides them and he tells them how to live. And, and not only who God is but what he has done where he has uh, created all things and he has delivered his people. And as Israel understood who God is and who they are, only then could they understand their place in the world. I cannot overemphasize that enough, brothers and sisters. And the reality is, it's no less true for us today. We live in a world where there's so many messages, so many things being said, and it's hard to know how to live. And I, I, I have so people come to me and say, Pastor Rick, I'm struggling with this or that, or what do I do with this or that? But the more that we understand who our God is and who He shows us who we are, the easier it is for us to know how to live even in this fallen world in which we live. Because we know our identity. We know who we are in relation to God. And so Israel had found their way home to Jerusalem, but their hearts were still prone to wonder. So what did they need? But they needed the Word of God. So that's the priority that you see that the people place on the word. But the second thing we see is the proclamation of the word. And that's the bulk of what this passage is about. Now, Ezra has been given a holy task to proclaim the word of God along with 13 other men. Why 13 men? I, I don't know. Uh, for six hours. And we read, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made 
for the purpose. Now, the word translated platform here literally means a tower. Okay, those of you who know me really well know that probably the, the thing that I want the most for Kirk of the Plains is that we have a high pulpit. That's not true. There's many things I would want for Kirk of the Plains, but I'd love to have a high pulpit. You know, but that, that's sort of what we see here is that sense of which, which Ezra sort of elevated high uh, on this elevated platform that allowed the people to see and to hear him, uh, not to elevate the man, but rather to elevate the ministry of the Word of God, that the people could see and they could hear the Word of God. And there were thousands of people listening. I mean, we don't know how many exactly. Commentators sort of guesstimate somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people. I'm sort of thinking when I read this Times Square on New Year's Eve, you know, you watch the ball drop and all these people that are there. But there's this massive amount of people. And here's Ezra standing and he's reading, he's proclaiming the word of God. And, and like I said, we're not told why these 13 men were standing with Ezra. But most likely they were priests, uh, and, and they were there to assist in the reading of the Word of God. Uh, after I get done preaching, the amount of time I preach, I go home, I'm exhausted. I cannot imagine standing and reading for six hours, and I'm guessing Ezra did not either. So those men were most likely there. Uh, to proclaim, to read, to take turns, to read the Word of God, especially if they had to speak with no amplification and had to speak, speak loud enough that people in the back could hear. You could only imagine how exhausting that would be. And so there was these other men that, that came up, and the people stood for six hours. Now, kids, let me just say this. The six hours didn't, that just was the reading part. Then there was like a teaching part afterwards that, that they did. So they actually stood longer for six hours. And, and they did so in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Many churches today stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And, and this is where it comes from. And, and if we look further in, in, in the chapter, uh, there are another 13 men that are there not only to help uh, in terms of proclaiming the word, but also in, in understanding it. Uh, as a matter of fact, in verse 7, it says uh, that these men helped the people to understand the law. Now, that, those words understand are repeated over and over uh, in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 8. Uh, now, having said that, that word is very difficult to understand exactly what is meant by that, that they help them to understand. And there's sort of two possibilities as to what the word could mean. It could mean that they were translating. You have to understand that many of these people had grown up in Babylon, and so they spoke Aramaic. They didn't necessarily speak Hebrew. And so as the scroll, kids, I don't know if you know that or not, but the Bible wasn't written in a book like this at that time. It was this big, long scroll, huge, you know, and they would roll it out and then they would read it. You know, since it's in Hebrew, they went right to left. OK, and they're reading this uh, to the people. But, you know, if I were to read to you kids out of a Spanish Bible or a German Bible, you wouldn't understand a word I was saying. Right. Um, 
Some in the congregation would understand, but not everybody would understand that. And so they would need somebody to translate that. And so that's one possibility of what that can mean about understanding. But there's another sense in which that they were seeking to help them to understand not only the, the meaning of what was being said, but the application of the law of God as well. And, uh, you know, we know from the New Testament, James, you know, that it calls us to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. So this would fit with that teaching as well. Now, the reality is, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could have been both that was happening. But, but it's important. The point, I think, is this, that we need to not only hear or to read the Bible, but to understand it and rightly apply the word of God. And these 13 men help the people to understand the word of God. Now, uh, if you uh, look at verse 2, it sort of describes who they were teaching. Men, women, and all who could understand what they heard. In other words, this reading and this interpreting and this explaining was not for adults only, but also for those who could hear with understanding. So there were those kids that were there as well. And throughout Scripture, we see that it is God's will that the Word of God be taught to our children, even from a very young age. Uh, we uh, see that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and other places talking about uh, children. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12, we read this, where God calls us a people. He says, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. So it's important that our kids hear the word of God, but also that they be taught what that means. And this is why we have kids in our worship service. Parents, I know it is hard. You know, I mean, I think that's one reason why God gave us seven children. And, and actually, more kudos to my wife, because I was in the ministry a lot of the time, so I was up front. But it's, it's a challenge, and, and I understand that. And I so much appreciate your love for your kids that, that you would train and teach them to worship. But we also want you to know as a church, that's why we're okay when there's noise in the worship service. Now, if a kid's screaming louder than I can preach, then maybe we need to talk. But, you know, if there's kids that I give a rhetorical question that I really don't want anybody to answer, but a kid answers it, that's fine. If your kid is sort of making noise or getting up and down on the chair, that's fine, you know? It's okay. We would rather our kids be here and hear the Word of God and, be, and grow up under that teaching and have them molded and shaped so that they can say, you know, I don't ever remember a time when I did not know the Word of God. I always had that taught. That's also why I seek to speak to the kids as well and try to uh, sometimes put this down on a level where they can understand it and maybe even understand how that uh, applies to help them um, with the desire that they would obey the Word of God. Now, some try to make the argument of this verse that small children weren't there and they shouldn't be in church. But to interpret the verse in that way really goes sort of against the weight of the biblical witness of Scripture because it talks so much about instructing and teaching our children. Um, 
But anyway, these, these 13 men helped the people to understand. And in verse 8, it really summarizes well what they were doing. It said they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And that's really the, the goal of every faithful minister of the Word of God. That we see here that the Word of God was read clearly with the goal of understanding it with application. Not just merely reading it, but understanding and applying it. And it's a good reminder for us, not only in corporate worship, but in our personal or our family worship as well, to understand the Word of God with applications. And, and I know that many Christians uh, don't see the, the value of Bible reading. I, I run into Christians all the time on the street that I'm talking to, and, you know, and I'll talk to them. You know, what, what are you reading in God's Word? And they're like, well, you know, we're sort of doing this thing at church. And I said, well, what about you personally? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not so much reading it. Um, or if they do, oftentimes it'll be that they just read it and go on their way. They don't take the time to understand it, and application is not part of their study. But we are reminded of the importance of understanding with application. Um, I like the, the shorter catechism. Question number three. It says, what do the scriptures principally teach? And I know some of you kids could answer this. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Do you know what? That's actually the, the best outline for any sermon you're going to hear. But that's the best outline as you're studying the scriptures yourself. Those are the things that you should be looking for. What is this revealed to me about God? Who, who, who does this, you know, who is my God? What, is, what has God said about himself? And, and what duty does God require of me as a result of this? And so preaching should strive to be clear and accessible and applicable. One preacher said it well. He said, it, every, all preaching, all ministry of the word, whether it's in the church, in the home, or whatever, should seek to be light and heat. And what he meant by that is it should be light in the sense that it should illuminate. It should make things clear as to what is being said in the text. But it also should be heat in the sense that it brings warmth and it transforms the soul. That's what the Word of God does. Once again, um, what we see here is another reason for the Protestant Reformation. At the heart of the Reformation was a revival of God's Word, a returning to God's Word and what He said. The Roman Catholic Church had neglected the Word. The priests were the only ones with access to it, and most of them were ignorant of the contents of the Word of God. And when the Word of God was preached or it was read in the worship, it was often in a foreign tongue, in Latin or something, in, in a language that the people didn't understand. And that's why you see the reformers like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale uh, laboring so hard to translate the Bible into English so that the people could have the Word of God. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German. John Calvin preached expository sermons and put them in his commentary so that people could read those and be blessed by those uh, that they would have the Word of God. The Reformation theme of sola scriptura renewed God's, God's people. Now, I, I have to say this. Just because we have God's Word doesn't mean we read God's Word. You know, we, we are probably the opposite. 
in many ways of the time of the Reformation in the sense that we have greater access. Our, our church Bible is not chained to the pulpit. It is in the language of the people. I, just uh, for fun and giggles, you know, I looked on my Bible software on my computer and I have 90 translations or I have 90 copies of the Word of God alone on my Bible. Now, some of those are German or Ukraine or whatever, so they don't really do me any good because I don't speak that language, but still, even English translations, there are many. We have so many on our phone, we can listen to them audibly, whatever. So you, you see the priority of the Word of God, you, you see the proclamation of the Word of God. The third thing I want us is to look at the people of God's Word and really their reaction to the Word of God. Um, and this is uh, really a reaction both before and after it was read. Uh, throughout the centuries, Christians have been known as people of the book. In other words, we've always sort of been seen as a little nerdy, right? You know, Christians have always been nerds in one sense. You know, bookworms, we, we like to be people of the book. And that, that's really a wonderful phrase because it, it shows what we have in common is God's Word. Now, I know that many people might say, well, no, actually Christians don't agree on God's Word. But, but I would argue, yes, that's true. We have differences in doctrine and, and stuff. I, I understand that. But especially if you get two mature believers together who know God's Word and they're confident in God's Word, even in those points where they disagree, there's a sense of unity. There's a sense of patience. There's a sense of humility to understand that our God is so great while He has communicated things to us in such a way that we can understand sometimes there are things that He has not revealed as clearly as what we had hoped. And so in those moments, we need to be humble, to be gracious and kind to one another. So it's not the Word of God that divides us. It's oftentimes our ignorance of the Word of God that we... Uh, put forth as if it was clearly seen and that's what causes division. It's our lack of humility. It's not the Word of God. Well, let me just say this. As the people were looking for the reading of God's Word, there was, a, there was sort of a sense of preparation. Um, one thing that may not be evident from the first reading of our text is how the people prepared to hear the Word of God. Uh, in our text, it sounds like, well, it was just sort of spontaneous. The people showed up and said, hey, Ezra, why don't you read God's law today? And he's like, sure, you write down. You know, and he came and he, he read God's law. I don't mean to be uh, sacrilegious about that, but, you know, you, that might be the way that we read it. But if you look at the text more carefully, you see that there actually was sort of a period of time that occurred here in Ezra uh, 8.2. Ezra brought the law or the scrolls out at a pre-planned time on the first day of the seventh month. It wasn't just that they asked and he read it. This was something that was planned, that he was going to bring the scrolls down. Ezra stood on the high platform to read, which had to be constructed, and it said that it was constructed for this purpose uh, in verse 4. And so uh, there had to be the preparation of that construction. And not only that, but if you look at the end of chapter 3, uh, or excuse me, chapter 7, Verse 73, the end of that chapter ends and says, um, And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. They were scattered. But now, as they're coming uh, to hear the word of God, they have gathered. So the people took time to travel and to come 
and to gather. There was a sense of anticipation, of valuing the Word of God and saying, we need to make this thing happen so that we can hear God's Word. So there's more forethought given to the ministry of the Word than we might first appear. And the people of God prepared for the ministry of the Word. Um, probably most of us as Christians would admit that our, one of our greatest failures is not adequately preparing to hear the Word of God. Maybe we would even have to admit that when we come on Sunday mornings, maybe we're coming more to hear if Pastor Rick could actually preach a good sermon or not, rather than coming to hear God speak to us through His Word. And so we sort of bring what is happening down to a horizontal level, forgetting the vertical level that God is coming and proclaiming his word to his people. And we oftentimes feel that inadequacy, whether it's in our personal worship time, our family worship time, or, or even in your preaching or teaching, you may feel that inadequacy. But also in our preparation to hear the word of God minister to us. As we do that, do we come with a sense of anticipation? Do, do we take the time to read the text ahead of time? Brothers and sisters, I have to say, Reformed Christians have no excuse not to prepare. Because you know exactly what I'm going to preach on next week, right? You know? Uh, because wherever we stop this week, we're going to pick up next week. Now, you may not know how far I'm going to go, but you know exactly what's coming up and can take the time to read that. Do we pray for the ministry of the Word of God? Do we pray over it? Do we pray for those who are proclaiming it? Do you pray for Josh? Do you pray for Noah? Do you pray for Katie or Robbie or myself or others who are teaching Sunday school or are preaching the Word of God? Are we asking God, God, please bring your Word to bear upon our hearts as your people. Lord, open our eyes for us to see and to behold your glory. So preparation is something that not only is for those who are ministering the Word, but also for the people. But then I want us to see very quickly the posture of the people. Now, we've talked about how the people stood for, you know, six plus hours in the honor of reading God's word. But look at verse six. It talked about how they also lift up their hands to the Lord. So it's okay to lift your hands up to the Lord in church. I know you're saying, Pastor Rick, we're Presbyterian. What are you talking about? It's okay. It's biblical to lift your hands up to the Lord. But, but when you do so, why do we do that? What is it symbolizing? It is symbolizing that we are receiving something. You see, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. You see, in some churches, you see people lifting up their hands during the benediction that the pastor gives at the end, the blessing that he gives upon God's people from God's word. And so they are lifting up their hands to receive that blessing. And so that shows a posture of a heart that is ready to receive the things of God. But also at verse 6, we see the posture of bowing. They bowed their heads, which is a posture signifying humility. So the people stood in the honor of hearing the word of God. They lifted their hands, signifying how they opened their hearts to receive the word of God. But they also bowed down in prayerful humility as the word of God exalts the God of the word and it shows us our place in the world you see the reason why we need the word of god read and preached is to understand that god is big and we are small 
that we are small and God is big. That's what we have to see. You know, but that's not how we do see things. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, you ought not to think more highly of yourselves than you should. Because we have a tendency to do that. Rather than seeing God as the one who is great. So the purpose is not so much to exalt the preacher, but the one who sent the preacher. God himself. John Calvin says, to truly know ourselves, we must first know God. We must first know God. And what enables us to truly know ourselves and know God, but it is his word. And so as we spend time in God's word and under godly preaching, we see ourselves in a way like no other. We see God for who he is. I mean, think about it. We're in a world that is constantly telling us God doesn't exist. There is no God. The only thing that's true around you is what you can touch and feel and taste and experience with your senses. So that's the message that we're hearing. How much more do we need to hear? And not to know only that God exists, but who that God is that exists. And therefore, we see our identity and our place in this world. So many of us trying to understand who we are and what our lives are like look um, at different things around us. And many come from broken homes. Even those that don't come from broken homes, they come from very good homes. They're not perfect. And so we're all lacking to some degree, but we need God to speak to us through His Word, by His Holy Spirit, to reveal who He is and who we are. And notice verse 6 says that it's really sort of the highlight of the text. As Ezra is reading the Word, he is also blessing the God of the Word. Do you see that language? He is blessing the God of the Word. And in this verse, we really see the purpose of preaching and the Word of God. Some would say that the purpose of the Word is it's a means of grace. And that's true. It is a means of grace. But preaching exists to bring glory to God. It doesn't exist to make our lives better or simpler or anything like that. It is to bring glory to God. Now, the preaching does affect us. But it is to glorify God. Preaching is, is about elevating God above all His people by elevating the Word of God above His people. It makes God big and us small. Now, as I conclude this morning, I just want to ask you this. Who is it that hates the Word of God? Who hates the ministry of the Word of God the most? And I would suggest to you it is the enemies of God. Obviously, Satan the most, but, but God's enemies. For the child of God, the word of God is the aroma of life. But to the enemies of God, it is the aroma of death. And it gives life to some, and it tears down, and it confounds, and it convicts other people. And so they don't like it. And Satan hates the ministry of the word for the same reason that God's, God and his people love it. That God's word convinces and it converts sinners. And, and, and when that happens, brothers and sisters, then that takes away from Satan's territory. Satan loses people that he wants to drag to hell for all eternity. He so doesn't want God to have his children. And so he does everything to stop that. So he has to downplay and he has to get rid of the word of God. 
So of all the things that you do in your life, one of the things that will be most challenging is in your reading of the Word of God. God wants to keep you from His Word. Or Satan wants to keep you from God's Word. That's what I meant to say. Excuse me. Satan wants to keep you from God's Word. Satan hates the Word of God because it penetrates hearts and it transforms lives. Therefore, he resists it with all his being and his power and his energy. But brothers and sisters, that's why Jesus Christ came into the world. Right, young people? You know what that's called, don't you? Incarnation, right? When Christ was incarnate, when he came as a man, he came because it's never enough for God's word to be spoken. God's word must be obeyed. And for that to happen, the word of God must become incarnate. It must become flesh. And so Christ, the word, becomes flesh and he dwelt among us. And Jesus showed us what the Word of God looks like lived out in humanity. Fully man, fully God. And that's why Satan not only hates the Word that's written, but also in the flesh. But when Christ came in the flesh, He didn't just leave us an example of this is how you ought to live, but uh, instead He gave us His Holy Spirit to indwell us. He left in us the very author of the Word of God to dwell in us. So I want to encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters. One of the surest signs that we belong to God is that we love His Word. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but we do sincerely love God's Word. But the Word of God, we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to God's Word? How do we view God's Word? Do we value it? Do we treasure it? Is it a priority? Do we seek to hear the proclamation of the Word of God? Do we seek to, to prepare ourselves? Do we respond to God's Word appropriately? You see, the Word of God calls us to come and to respond. To see that God is big and we are small. And therefore to see our place in the world. Brothers and sisters, may we always be people of the book. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we uh, reflect upon what God has spoken to us this morning. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word uh, in written form and bound it and given it to us in so many different formats and ways that there's no question that we have probably the greatest accessibility to your word of any people of any time. We thank you, God, for your wonderful grace in giving us that. But we pray, Lord, that we would be a people of the word. Lord, that we would not just read the word but understand it, to understand what it is revealing about you. Lord, for it to be a mirror to our own hearts, to, 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 to bring us to the end of ourselves, to show us even, even as your children, those things that we struggle with that are absolutely wicked. But God, driving us back to you again, to give you praise that you have redeemed us and you are changing us 
and you are making us like your son. Lord, please, we pray that you would bring a revival uh, to our community, to our homes, to our businesses, to our schools, all these. Lord, we pray that you would show yourself for who you are uh, in the midst of all the darkness and the things that are happening in this world. May we never lose hope. May we never forget who our God is. And Lord, may we live with the one goal in mind that we might stand before you one day and hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. Let us have no other goals in life but that. Oh Lord, we thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.